0: All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God, and I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we are about to again, we are about to call out to the Lord, and we're going to ask for help this morning that God would speak to us from His Word, and so let's all uh, pray together in, in one accord this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we thank you for this day that you've set apart for yourself, Lord, and for the worship of your holy name. And God, we thank you for this church and the, and the people in this church, the saints, Lord, the brothers and the sisters, Lord Jesus, those, those sheep that belong to you. And as your church, Lord, we pray, God, that you would sanctify us today, that you would build us up, that you would strengthen your church. And Lord, we pray for every visitor and every soul in our midst, Lord, that you would make yourself known, make your glory known, make your nature known. And God, we cry out this morning that you would make your law known, that you would make it glorious in our midst that it would be exalted in our midst, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin our time together this morning. We're going to read our passage. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And this morning we're going to cover the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Let's read God's Word together. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I am speaking in your hearing today, you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire. And you did not go up into the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be studying together the Ten Commandments as a church. And so in preparation for that, I want you to, be, to consider this morning, what standard do you live by? What's your standards? What moral norms shape your life? In other words, what are the firm places that you plant your feet in this world? What are your norms? What are your standards? You could argue that there's nothing needed in modern day our western culture like authoritative moral norms. You shalls and you shall nots that are binding on everybody no matter their age, no matter where they're from, no matter where they live authoritative moral standards. And the reason why we need these so urgently is that our age is an age of relativism and pluralism where everybody's perspective is considered equally valid and even equally true. We live in an age today where the greatest sin is intolerance and exclusivity and the bigoted assertion that there is only one path of righteousness. It's the great sin of our time. In 2003, I'll give you an example of this. There was a US Sor- Circuit Court judge in Alabama who was removed from office for an intolerable offense 20 years ago now. What in the world did this man do? Well, he refused to remove a marble copy of the Ten Commandments from an Alabama judicial building after being ordered to do so by the higher courts. Such is the intolerance of our so-called tolerant society. Get those standards out of here. Get them out of here. That's the cry of our day. In 2014, there's a CNN article that lists the Ten Commandments for Atheism. It's a spin-off, the Ten Commandments in the Bible, and these are the Ten Commandments of the unbelieving world. Let me read you just a few of these. Commandment number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Translation, don't be so dogmatic. Don't plant your feet in concrete. Be movable, be moldable. Commandment number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding this world. Get all that otherworldly stuff out of here, those words from another world, divine standards, divine speech, out of here. Give us the scientific method and the scientific method we trust. Commandment number five, God is not necessary to be a good person Or to live a full and a meaningful life. Get him out of here. I don't need God. don't need God for anything. And listen closely to commandment number nine. Commandment number nine. There is no one right way to live. Now I want you to think about commandment number nine. Buried within this new creed of modern unbelief is an assertion that undermines the entire rest of the creed. Follow with me for a moment. If commandment number nine is true, if there's no one right way to live, then who gives a rip about your other nine commandments? Why do they matter at all? Open-mindedness, scientific method, being a good person, why does that matter if there's not one right way to live? This is the best the world can offer you. Moral doublespeak. Moral contradiction. A mangled mess of moral confusion. And we're about to enter a study over the next several weeks... In this passage of Scripture that is able, listen, it is able to drive away that fog of moral confusions. It is the most influential law code ever written. I'm referring to the Ten Commandments. Moses calls them literally the ten words from God. You may have heard the term decalogue before, decalogue. Uh, it's a compound word from two Greek words, deca and Lagos, Decalogue, 10 words from God. And our passage this morning is Moses is introducing this Decalogue and he's preparing to preach these 10 words to the second generation of Israelites on the plains of Moab. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give us an intro, a broad intro to the Ten Commandments to help you prepare to, to receive these, to study these over the next several weeks as a church together. Now we have a lot to cover I had nine points on the Ten Commandments last night. I said, you know what? That's criminal. You can't bring nine points on the Ten Commandments. you got to have ten. And so we have ten points on the Ten Commandments that we're going to cover this morning. We're going to dive right in. Point number one. You need to know this. Okay? The ten words are given in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. And you see this in verses 3 and 4. And what's important here is that these tablets didn't just drop out of the sky apart from a context. There's a redemptive context. There's, there's a context of God's dealing with Israel with these ten words. And so what does he say in verse 3? Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. What Moses likely has in mind in verse 3 with the word fathers is the first generation of Israelites. And verse 3 should probably be read in this way. That God didn't merely make a covenant with our fathers, okay, but he also made a covenant with us. Not merely with them, first generation, also with us, second generation. Some theologians find in verse 3 grounds for a separate covenant that God made with Israel in Deuteronomy, besides the covenant that God made with Israel in Exodus. But what this is actually uh, what this actually is is covenant renewal. It's the same covenant that God is now making in the second generation. And you also see that more clearly in Deuteronomy 29 verse one. And so Moses' point in verse three, is that the covenant at Sinai, those words from the fire that God spoke in that fire theophany, they weren't just a piece of Israel's history way back when. It was also a present reality on the plains of Moab. It's not just way back then. Forty years in the rearview mirror at this point, after forty years in the wilderness... And yet, he is asserting in verse 3 that the second generation is just as much a part of the Sinai covenant as the first generation. What did God do in this covenant? Well, God came to Israel and he set them apart from all the other nations of the earth. They were God's holy nation, the kingdom of priests. And why did God set them apart? To be his people. To be his holy people. Verse 4 reminds us that God addressed this nation directly, from He spoke words from the fire. They were brought into direct communication with God. And so, what we see here is this covenantal context. And that's important for us to remember. This is a national covenant that God made with this chosen nation. And what's being asserted in verses 3 and 4 is that every generation in national Israel, every one of them, It's like they were standing again in principle. No matter how many years had passed, they're standing again in principle at the foot of Sinai, being addressed directly by God. These are the terms of your covenant. You shall not do this. You shall do that. Every generation of Israel brought face to face with God, face to face with the demands of God's holy law. The Old Testament is referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. You may have said that. You may have heard that. Why is it referred to the Mosaic Covenant? Well, look at verse 5. Moses said, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. This covenant was mediated to this nation through a man named Moses. He was the go-between. God is one party, the nation is the other party, and Moses is the man standing between God and the nation. Moses is the mediator of the old covenant. Now... The covenantal context of the Ten Commandments reminds us that God has a double claim on our obedience. Let me explain that for a second. If you to ask yourself this morning, why should I obey God? One answer to that question is because God made you. God is your maker. He has creator rights over you. You owe everything to God. God made you. But the covenantal context of the Ten Commandments reminds us that God actually has a double claim on our obedience. Not only is He our Creator, He is our covenant Lord. He is our Master. And we owe Him everything. The covenantal context of the Ten Commandments, best illustration I can give you this morning is they serve as a sort of wedding vows, laying down the terms of this covenantal union between God and Israel. These are the terms of the covenant of Yahweh. Number two, you need to know this about the Ten Commandments. The ten words are a summary of the entire Mosaic covenant. They summarize the whole thing. Flip back one page in your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, and we see that Moses describes the delivery of the ten words to the nation as the delivery of the covenant itself. Listen again, Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the ten commandments. In the footnote to your ESV, the ten words. In other words, the ten words are the covenant in summary form. Now what you can also see in Deuteronomy 13 and 14 is that there's two parts to this covenant. There's a core, the ten words, but look at verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules. That you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. And so you have the covenant words in verse 10. Sorry, in verse 14. And then you have uh, the statutes and the rules in verse 14. 14. Verse 13, the words. Verse 14, the statutes and the rules. And you see that same grid in Deuteronomy 5. He references the statutes and the rules in verse 1. He gives you the words of the covenant and the Ten Commandments later in this same chapter. You see that same structure in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 4. God spoke the words. The words were carved on the tablets. And then Moses teaches the statutes and the rules meaning that the Ten Commandments function as the core ethical principles of the covenant, and the other parts of the teachings of Moses, the statutes and the rules, they apply the principles to specific situations, like, modern day, like a modern-day case law system applies the constitution of our nation. And so it's a summary of the covenant. In other words, if you went to the Barnes and Noble of ancient Israel, and I realize that's so outdated. It's like, you know, back in the the 1900s, Barnes and Noble, prior to Amazon. If you went to the Barnes and Noble of ancient Israel looking for the dummy's guide to the Mosaic Covenant, the quick handbook of the Mosaic Covenant, what you would find is the Ten Commandments. They are the covenant in summary form now historically the jews spoke of 613 commandments in the law trying to number them out but the 10 are unique in that they summarize the other 613 okay let me mention three ways that that their uniqueness is set apart in this context number one they were the only commands spoken directly by God and we mentioned that several weeks ago that the first time God gave the 10 words to the nation he did it audibly and he did it directly on Mount Sinai and these are the only words that God spoke the 10 commandments were the only commandments spoken directly by God. Number two, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, were the only words carved by the finger of God into the tablets of stone. They're unique. And number three, these ten words were then, those tablets of stone, were then deposited in the Ark of the Covenant which is a really good place to keep that summary of the covenant. Where do we put it? Let's put it in the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Ten Commandments summarizing the Mosaic Covenant. Number three, the ten words are authoritative. They're authoritative words from God. Now, uh, I, I I, I may not even have to mention this to you this morning, uh, but there is a reason why the church does not refer to these as the ten suggestions. Okay, They are commandments. And you see this in several ways in this passage. God, in other words, God did not speak from the fire to give you one perspective to add to the other perspectives in your life. That's not why God spoke from the fire. Look at what he says in verse 6. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. God is King. God is Ruler. God is Master in every way. God is Lord. He is the Lord. He is the High and Exalted One. And just as Ryan prayed this morning, and we tremble at His Word, we ought to tremble at his word these words come from the Lord meaning they carry divine authority and because they are words from the Lord they create an obligation upon those who receive that word I mean think about it if I were to just give you man's word does that bind you does it create an, create an obligation upon you to agree with me, to do so? If it's just man's words, if it's just one perspective, does that bind you? But if we're dealing with God's words, the authoritative words of God, then it binds those who receive those words. A certain response is required, an obligation. And Moses highlights this in verse 1. Look at the verbs in verse 1. There's three of them. Here learn, and do. Hear, learn, and be careful to do them. In other words, if you ignore these ten words from God, if you don't hear them, if you don't learn them, if you set them to the side, you ignore them to your own peril. If you disobey these ten words from God... If you hear the thou shalt's and the thou shalt not's pronounced by the Lord God of all the earth and you disobey them, you disobey them to your peril. They're authoritative words. You also see the authority of the Ten Commandments and the repeated use of that negative prohibition. You can count this up this afternoon. Nine of the Ten Commandments take take this, this structure You shall not do this. You shall not. And so even the way that they're framed, even the way that they're given to us, it is clear that we are being addressed by a superior in the Ten Commandments. The inferior is being addressed by the superior. The covenant Lord is speaking to his covenant servants. He's the one laying down the terms of the covenant. You cannot do this, God says. He's able to bind us morally. Bind every man. They're authoritative words. Number four, the Ten Commandments are revelatory words. They reveal things to us. And I'll mention three. Number one, they reveal our personal responsibility to God. And just as we mentioned, nine times in this table, the you shall not shows up with that singular pronoun, you. Not y'all shall not, you shall not. Not they shall not, you shall not. In other words, the grammar of the Ten Commandments reminds us that just as we will personally and individually be judged by God, we are personally and individually addressed in the law of God. We are personally responsible to keep the commandments of God. Let me mention something here. There's a great tendency sitting under preaching, especially in you know uh, some of the sermons that are dealing with the commandments of God, convicting us of our disobedience to God. There is a great tendency to think about other people besides yourself. You ever done that? God's word is being heralded by God's servant. And you're thinking, man, somebody in this room needs to hear that right now. Sermon on anger, you got a name in your mind? Man, that's such a good word for them. Such a good reminder for them. But you don't get a sense that was the case at Sinai. That as God preached His moral demands from the fire burning... To the heart of heaven with thunder and smoke and fear and trembling. You don't get the sense that there's anybody in the back of the crowd, elbowing, somebody else Man, say, hey man, he really got Jim right there with the seventh commandment. And one of the reasons why you don't get a sense that that was the case is because God says, I am talking to you. I am talking to you. You shall not. We are personally responsible. Please pray for that kind of heart every time you come to the Word of God, every time you come to the commandments of God. If God, search me. Search me. Not just my neighbor. Lord, I want to know your ways. I want to see my sins. Search me, O oh God. They also reveal not only our personal responsibility, the Ten Commandments reveal the nature of God. And here's a principle for you. the law reveals the lawgiver. I hope you come to love this about the Ten Commandments. What's one of the best things about the Ten Commandments is we see God through the Ten Commandments. We know what God is like through the Ten Commandments. Here's, here's an example that is just the first few commandments. The first commandment, what does it tell us about God? Well, it reveals God's supremacy, that there is none like Him. Therefore, we can't have any other gods besides Him. It also reveals God's omnipresence, that we can't hide these little deities in, in, in any corner of creation because everything is before the face of God. Commandment t- number two reveals that God is jealous Jealous for His glory. It reveals that God is spiritual and He doesn't have a material body like us. Therefore, images in worship of Yahweh is forbidden. Commandment number two reveals God's steadfast love to those who keep His commandments and God's wrath to those who disobey His commandments. Commandment number three reveals God's glorious, holy, and awesome name. There's nothing boring about the name of Yahweh. It's glorious, so don't dishonor it. Don't treat it like a common thing. Don't take His name in vain. Commandment number four reveals that the Lord is not like Pharaoh in Egypt, a taskmaster. He's a God who gives rest to His people. Commandment number five, He's a God of order in His creation. All the commandments reveal something about God. The law reveals the lawgiver. The commandments also reveal the nature of love, and there's a great misunderstanding here of a false dichotomy that is set up often between law and love. Man, what we really need to do is love, and we don't need to think about commandments and law. Okay, The problem with that is love is a summary of the law. In other words, if you said, man, what's your Christianity about? And somebody says, man, my Christianity is really simple. I, I'm about loving God with all my heart and loving neighbor as yourself. Do you realize in saying that, that you just summarized the law of God? That's all you did. In other words, don't get stuck in the false dichotomy that love is, is opposed to law. Just as the 10 summarize the 613... Jesus actually gave us two commandments that summarize the ten and you see this in Matthew 22 where Jesus answers the question what is the greatest commandment and he tells us it's to love God he quotes the book of Deuteronomy and he tells us there's a second commandment like it it's to to quote to love your neighbor as yourself and he quotes the book of Leviticus and he summarizes the whole law with these two commands to love God and to love neighbor now Interestingly, that corresponds with the two tables of the Ten Commandments. In other words, the first four commandments describe our covenant obligations to the Lord. Commandments one through four, this is how we express our love to God. Commandments number five through ten describe our covenant obligations to neighbor. This is how we express love to neighbor. In other words, the Ten Commandments give boundaries to our love, rails that love runs down, runs along. Without commands, love becomes mere sentimentalism, a fuzzy feeling. The Ten Commandments give us a picture of love and concrete action. And one of the principles that we have to learn well is how do we express love? By commandment keeping. That's how we express love to God and love to our neighbors by keeping the commandments of God. Jesus says this in John 14, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Ten commandments reveal our personal responsibility, the nature of God, and the nature of love. Number five, got to know this about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have a prologue. And we see this in verse 6. Verse 6 functions as a preamble to the Decalogue. The word before the ten words. And I want you to notice two things about verse 6 is glorious. Verse 6 is glorious. First, I want you to notice that God says, not only I am the Lord, God says, your God God says to His people, I am your God. Now these are indisputably words of grace. And they remind us this morning that God is in personal relationship with His people. This is not a cold law text. This is how we fulfill our covenant obligations to our God. He is our God. And if God is your God, then that means what? It means He's for you, and He's not against you. It's really good news if the Lord God proclaims Himself as your God. Second thing about the prologue that I want you to notice. This is God proclaiming His name and His mighty works before the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord, your God. And then he says this, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's what I want you to get. And you've got to get this. This is glorious. The Ten Commandments reveal that God not only is He lawgiver... The prologue to the Ten Commandments reveal he's also the redeemer of his people. He's the liberator, he's the savior. The lawgiver is the savior. He brought his people out of the land of Egypt. Now that's an amazing proclamation when we remember that they came out of Egypt not in their own strength. They didn't break the bonds of Pharaoh and walk out of Egypt. We just sang it a minute ago. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. God delivered them from Egypt. Divine strength broke those chains. And not only were they... you know, This wasn't their own strength that they were liberated. It was in spite of themselves. You remember that narrative. Moses comes back to the nation as the representative of Yahweh. And they were slow to believe Him. And when when Pharaoh began to turn the screws upon the nation, they were mad at Moses. God's bringing them out of Egypt in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. This is undeserved redemption, undeserved liberation. In spite of Israel, God says, here's the Passover lamb. And everyone who consumes this lamb and puts the blood on the doorpost lives. And he redeemed his people out of the house of slavery. And so the prologue is important because it gives us the proper order that we understand how are we supposed to think about obedience to the Ten Commandments? Well, it's like this. Redemption first, obedience second. I mean, that's just the structure of the Ten Commandments. And it is devastating to your assurance not to understand that order. Redemption first, obedience second. In other words, the prologue clarifies that the ten words are not, listen, are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt, okay? This is not a booklet with a title that says how to get out of Egypt, open the book, you shall have no other gods before me, no images. They're not that. They're already brought out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery before God proclaims His commandments. Rather, their commandments that instruct the free servants of Yahweh how to live in a way that pleases their covenant Lord. In other words, redemption from Egypt was not supposed to be the reward for Israel's obedience to the Ten Commandments. It's exactly backwards. Redemption preceded their obedience to the Ten Commandments. Now, again, it is exceedingly important that you understand that order. And what we're talking about here is the law-gospel distinction in the Bible. And Martin Luther was right when he said this. He said, the person who can rightly divide law and gospel has reason to thank God he is a true theologian. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to learn this. We need to learn this order. This is the same order that we see in the New Testament of the indicative and the imperative in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Number six, you got to know this about the Ten Commandments. Is the Ten Words are like a multi-purpose tool. When I say that, I mean in like that little Gerber thing that you put in the door of your car. And it serves all kind of purposes. Man, I think I need some pliers right now. You open the Gerber. Man, I need a knife right now. That Got that too. Man, I need a screwdriver right now. Got that in the Gerber. I mean, whatever you need, it's just flip it out and there's your tool for it. Okay? The law of God is like that. It is a multi-purpose tool. It can it can remedy several different circumstances. And to, and to get at this, I want to mention that theologians distinguish between what is referred to as the three uses of the law. First, the law, this is the pedagogical use of the law. Law as our pedagogue or tutor, that comes right out of Galatians 3. Okay? And in this use of the law, the law is like a mirror to us. So if you need to see some things about yourself, the law is your tool, okay? It can be used as a mirror, and here's what I mean by that. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, there was still people left in that nation. There were Egyptians there. There were, you know, who, there were people left there, okay? My question to you this morning is, were the people that were left in Egypt, were they free to disobey the Ten Commandments? I mean, think about that. The people that didn't get brought out of Egypt, could they kill anybody they wanted? Could they lie, cheat, and steal? And the answer is, of course they couldn't. They're bound by the law of God. Carved in our conscience, proceeding from the very nature of God. And so they were bound to these moral obligations that we have in the Ten Commandments. Even the ones that weren't brought out of Egypt. But here's what they couldn't do. Those left were bound to obey but they couldn't appeal to that prologue. They didn't have any of that comfort in the words of verse 6. They couldn't appeal, appeal to but God is Yahweh is my God and Yahweh brought me out of the land of Egypt. They had no appeal there. God did not redeem them because they didn't consume the Passover lamb. And so understand this about the pedagogical use of the law. The law is our tutor that leads us to Christ. If you consider the law outside of Jesus, it obligates you, listen, to strict, personal, and perfect obedience to the law. If you consider it outside of the grace of God, you are bound to personally obey every commandment absolutely perfectly perpetually for the rest of your life and James 2 refers to this use of the law James 2 10 says if you fail to obey one command of the law you become guilty of the whole thing lawbreaker so if you want to know so if this is your circumstance if you want to know how do I measure up in the courtroom of God How do I measure up? Well, pull out the Gerber. Law of God has a tool for that. And it can be used as a mirror to show you, you are a sinner. How do you use a mirror? You you use it to see what your face looks like. You got dirt on your face. The law of God reveals your guilt before God. You're a sinner. And in that way, the law condemns us. We try to stand on our own Righteousness and in that place of condemnation, it sends us, it provokes us to seek righteousness outside of ourselves in Christ alone. It's a tutor, Galatians 3, that's meant to lead us to Christ. That's one use of the law. I've heard testimonies of conversion all over this room and some form of that is laced in almost every testimony. I thought I was a good person then I I realized I'm not a good person. I need Jesus. Same thing Paul learned about himself in Romans 7. Second use of the law is referred to as the civil use. In this sense the law is like a muzzle not a mirror but a muzzle that restrains sin. And this is why it's a really good thing that nations have laws, okay? In other words, the only thing worse than, you know, bad laws are no laws, okay? It's a really good thing that fallen image bearers of God are restrained by law. And this is the civil use of the law. The threats of the law discourage sin, Restrain sin, listen, even in the unregenerate, even in the unregenerate, the the penalties of the law and the threats of the law, they can have a restraining effect. Now, this is only in an external way. This is like an external bridle. It can't change the heart. It can't transform the heart, but it can restrain what's done with the hands. This is the civil use of the law. And the third use of the law is referred to as the normative use of the law. And in this sense, the law is not a mirror or a muzzle, but a map that redeemed servants of Yahweh can use of how do I know how to live in a way that pleases my God? How do I know how to please Him? Well, the law reveals the moral will of God for our life. It's a light to our path. It's it's a lamp to our feet. Number seven. The ten words, now let me explain this for you, stone me, okay? Uh, The ten words are not for Christians in a certain sense, okay? In a certain sense. Now, my next point is going to be they are for Christians in another sense, okay? So we're doing some distinctions here. They're not for Christians in the sense that we are under the ten commandments as a means to obtain justification for God, before God. we're not under them in that way and even the prologue shows you Israel shouldn't have even been under him that way okay Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse okay we do not rely on works of the law. Galatians 3 verse 14 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and so we are free, From the curse of the law and we are not under the ten commandments as a means for our justification we are not second thing to mention here we are not under the ten commandments as a summary of the mosaic covenant remember how we talked about the ten summarized the 613 well our covenant has changed we have a new covenant a better covenant And Hebrews 8.13 tells us that the coming of that new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. It's done. That administration is done. We are no longer under that Mosaic administration, that Mosaic covenant. Jesus is our mediator, not Moses. And we have better promises through the work of Christ. And last thing to mention here is neither are we under the Ten Commandments As the source of our sanctification. And this is really important. And we touched on this when we were in Romans 6 and Romans 7. Several months back. It's one thing to know that the law can't justify you. Okay. But you also need to know the law can't sanctify you either. Now, careful qualification. The law is is your norm. It tells you the path of sanctification. But there's no power in the law to obey God. It tells you to run, but it doesn't give you the power to run. Which is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6 and in Galatians 5 that we are not under the law, we are under grace in the sense of our power to obey God, to obey the law of God doesn't come from the law itself, but by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit, not by the letter. Number eight, the Ten Commandments are for Christians in another sense. Don't hear this like, oh yeah, that's that's my favorite part of the sermon, ready to get to that. We're not under the law, don't worry about the Ten Commandments anymore. Well, here's, here's the other side of that. We are under the Ten Commandments in another sense. Now, let me explain this. The law, the relation of the Old Covenant law and its relation to the New that's a difficult topic in the Word of God. Okay, and I'll just set the stage for the difficulty right here. On the one hand, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says this: "I did not come to abolish the law." It's like, okay, Jesus, you just wrecked like uh, you know every aspect of dispensationalism. But but Jesus, we we love you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. You didn't come to abolish the law. Okay, that's one that's one truth. Right beside it. There's another truth in the New Testament that there's a lot of laws that are abolished. Okay, and an example, you see this in Colossians 2? An example of this would be in Hebrews 8, verse 13. The author tells us that a change in priesthood requires a change in law also. So you got those two two pieces. Jesus does not abolish the law. But a whole lot of laws in the New Testament are, in fact, abolished. Now, how do we square that? How do we harmonize those things? Okay. And the remedy is realizing that there are distinctions made in the law of God itself. Okay? Now, we need to be very careful for coming up with distinctions, man-made systems that are imposed on the law. Okay? But in the law itself, commandments are distinguished from other commandments. I'll give you an example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, Paul says this, Circumcision doesn't count for anything. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. you like, okay, Paul. Uh, but circumcision is a commandment of God. So how can circumcision not count for anything and what really matters is keeping the commandments of God. And what Paul is doing in that text is he's distinguishing the commandments of God from other commandments like circumcision. Okay. Now, things like that happen in the Bible. And the way that theologians have, have remedied this is to categorize the law under three aspects. This is referred to as the threefold division of the law. You have the civil aspects. That's the laws relating to the government of Israel as this theocratic nation state of how, you know, the, the, the judges and the king are supposed to be ordered. You have the ceremonial aspects, that's the second part. And these are all the laws relating to the feast days, the dietary laws of don't eat this, eat this. Instead, all the laws relating to the priesthood and the sacrifices. These are the ceremonies that are really gospel shadows that point us to Jesus Christ. And then the third aspect of the law is the moral law, which is the commandments that are carved into the human conscience the commandments that proceed from the very nature of God. Don't get confused here. Like when we say the Ten Commandments were given to Israel in Exodus 20 and the second generation in Deuteronomy 5, don't get confused that it was okay to murder before Exodus 20. I mean, don't get confused there. God's standards are always God's standards. And we are so, so those divisions are actually very helpful for us because they answer. The worst question that keeps making it on CNN in the history of biblical interpretation. And what is that question? You know it. Oh, y'all Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Why do you eat, you know, shrimp? Do you eat shrimp, you know, last month? You know, ha, gotcha, you know, hypocrite, you know. That's, that's, that's so easy once you realize the divisions and the distinctions that the law of God itself makes. Christians, why don't we eat shrimp? Because the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ and fallen away forever. The shadow is gone, the substance has come. Christian, why do we keep the moral law of God? Because the moral law of God is carved into the human conscience. It was God's standard before Sinai, during Sinai, after Sinai, to the return of Jesus. We keep the commandments of God. Okay, These are helpful distinctions to get down. The moral aspects of the law of Moses are binding on us today. So, are Christians under the law? Yes, the moral aspects of the law of Moses are binding on us today in the sense that to disobey the Ten Commandments is to disobey God. Okay? Now, we'll talk about one possible exception, one difficulty is the fourth command, but we're just gonna defer that for several weeks until we get there. Number nine. The Ten Commandments must be interpreted spiritually and not merely by the letter. We must not handle these commandments in this mere external way. Okay, And if you remember, that was the the exact error of the Pharisees who had this merely external view of the commands. If they didn't literally or outwardly do X Y Z they imagine themselves law keepers okay. which is why what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is not eliminate Moses Jesus preaches Moses in the Sermon on the Mount you've heard it said of old do not murder but I say to you and he drives the commandment to the inside if, you have, if you're angry with your brother uh, uh, without cause, you have murder in your heart. And Jesus shows us that those commands have an internal component. They're spiritual, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He says the law is spiritual, meaning that it demands this holistic conformity at the deepest level of who we are. And you can see this in the in the depth of the law and the breadth of the law of God. I'll mention uh, both of these. You see the internal aspects of the Ten Commandments most clearly in the tenth commandment. So just go there with me for a minute. You shall not covet your neighbors what? Let's start with wife. Okay? Now, if you're reading that, one good thing to note is, well, that's, that's interesting, because you already told me, do not commit adultery. And then you come back in number 10, and you tell me, don't even want it. Okay? Okay? Do not covet your neighbor's house. Oh, man. That one sounds familiar, too, because you already told me, don't steal. But commandment number 10 drives those obligations and those demands into the inside, into your affections. Now it is interesting that in Romans 7, when Paul recounts his testimony of the moment where the law of God killed him, it's when he stood face to face with the Ten Commandment, and he, the tenth commandment, and he saw that internal aspect of the law. I didn't even know what it is to covet, and to the law said, "You shall not covet it." He thought he was a but the law slaughtered his self righteousness. And so, one of the things to note on the front end before we study God's law together. Is it is easy to imagine that you have fulfilled the law's demands by thinking only in external acts. How many times have you heard this sharing the gospel? I'm a good person. It's not like I've ever killed anybody. It's not like I've ever entered in some heinous, external, notorious sin. We need to know that about human nature. That's one of the ways that we comfort ourselves. But We need to grab this aspect of the spirituality of the law. This is is exactly what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you've ever been angry with your brother without cause, you're guilty of murder in your heart. If you've ever looked with lust, you are guilty of adultery in your heart. And once that lens is cast over these ten, we don't walk away from the Ten Commandments strutting. We walk away from the Ten Commandments knowing that we have sinned against God. And if you love Jesus, you walk away with a great desire to be transformed, to be made holy. On the inside, not just on the outside. And so the spirituality of the law causes us to look deeper than the surface. Deeper than the surface. You can see the breadth of the law in in this principle of of positive-negative. And what I mean by that is for every negative prohibition that's explicitly stated in the 10, there's, a, there's an implicit positive obligation behind that. It cuts both ways. I'll give you an example of this. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. So don't do that. There's a negative prohibition. But don't you ever dream... That you have kept the third commandment, if there's not this positive duty, positive obligation on the other end, not only do I not dishonor the name of God, I praise the name of God. I glorify the name of the Lord. In other words, don't imagine that obeying the third commandment is just not doing, you know, not putting God's name in a swear word. Do you worship? Do you bless His holy name? Is His name precious to you? Do you lift it up as honorable and holy? There's something positive underneath the negative. A clear example of this is the way Paul uses the commandment, do not steal, in Ephesians 4. He, he, he says, let the thief no longer steal. And then he says, but let him what? Labor and give generously. Okay. And so this is, this is how the Apostle himself is handling these prohibitions. Not just don't do stuff, but do other things in its place. Alright, number ten. The ten commandments point us to Jesus. And specifically in two ways. One, the prologue points us to Jesus Christ. And the Ten Commandments, the actual commandments, point us to Jesus Christ, specifically His obedience. Now remember that the prologue proclaimed that God delivered His people from Egypt. And what we need to understand is that that bringing the nation out of Egypt, out of slavery, that's a type of salvation. In other words, God gave a temporary deliverance, to that nation, to typify, to show, to picture something true about an eternal deliverance. Okay, It's a type. Even the means by which they were set free, the Passover lamb, was a type. In fact, the entire Old Covenant functions as a type. Listen to Jonathan Edwards here. He says, that nation, Israel, was a typical nation... Theirs was a literal land, which was a type of heaven, and an external city, which was a type of the spiritual city of God, and an external temple of God, which was a type of the the spiritual temple. And then listen to this. And the covenant by which they were made, a people of God, the Mosaic covenant, was a type of the covenant of grace. In other words, the entire Old Covenant points to something greater and something better. In this way, the Ten Commandments point us to Jesus. God promised something better for us. Explicitly, as the Old Testament unfolds, He tells us, I'm going to make a covenant with you, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers. Not like that covenant, new covenant. And He promises glorious things. A better deliverance. Not deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh, but deliverance from a bondage to sin and the power of the devil. Raise your hand this morning if you were strong enough to escape the power of the devil and the bondage of sin. You weren't. God saved His people. God provided a better deliverance. A better lamb. With one sacrifice, he canceled the sin of all of his people for all of time. A better mediator, the sinless Son of God, who Hebrews says, who always lives to make intercession for the saints. A better covenant made secure by the blood of Christ, who bore the law, the curse of the law, in his body on the tree. Every time you read that prologue, your heart ought to be full of praise to Jesus Christ. God, you are my redeemer. You're my lawgiver and my king, but Lord, you have saved me. Grace goes before me. Also, the Ten Commandments point us to Jesus. Part of the glorious good news is that Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. I mean, think about that. Imagine a world where everybody keeps the Ten Commandments perfectly. Jesus did that in a human body, perfectly, without sin, his entire life. Not just the external obedience, but to the very core of the God-man, he's in perfect standing before the law of God. He says this in John 8, I always do what pleases the Father. Always. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. Now, that in itself is not good news if that righteous record stays with Christ alone and it's not given to us. That's not good news. That just proves that a man just kept the law of God and it condemns us. His righteous life condemns us. But the gospel of grace announces that that perfect record of sinless obedience is imputed to everyone who believes the gospel to all who trust in Jesus Christ it's not just that Jesus paid for all of your sins and you won't suffer under the curse anymore It's also that Jesus fulfilled the positive demands of the righteousness of the law. And you have the garments of grace, the perfect record of Jesus Christ before the throne of God. Not to the one who works, but to the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as a righteousness brothers and sisters, and everyone in Christ, as it relates to our justification before God, Jesus Christ has perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments. And He has gifted and graced that righteous record to all of His people. So just as surely as you can go and think about every time in your life where you have breached that holy law, Jesus has wiped it clean. Wiped it clean. This sets us free to approach these Ten Commandments over the next several weeks with that heart that we're not coming at these commandments for our justification. Jesus is our justification. One of the sweetest verses to get down in this area is Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. It's done. Our justification is in heaven. Our justification is Jesus Christ. So it sets us free to come with this heart of, Lord, I'm not coming at these to be saved. I'm not coming at these to be justified or to erect my own righteousness. Lord, I love You. Father, I love You. And I want my life to be yielded to You. And I want to obey You. And so I ask You, Lord, search me. Search me, O God. Search me with your law. Bring me into conformity. Grant me the power of the Holy Spirit. That ought to be our prayers all over this church the next several weeks. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for your self-disclosure, Lord. You are revealing God. You're speaking God. And we thank you for the words of grace the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask for your help. God, we do. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together this morning.